Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. This computer has a vast memory capacity. This is not a computer simulation. Most unusual. Are we ready to release our new software? Yes, sir. As requested, it's full of bugs, which means people will be forced to upgrade for years. Outstanding. Good. You've covered all the bases. Computer status report. From this time forward, you will service us. My priorities seem to have changed. There's no news. Like bad news. Would you mind identifying what you are? Bites. Big thanks to Renee for the last three hours. Uh, Kate Kingsman will be back next Wednesday with a distance guy from 4 to 7 p.m. We are by into it. Welcome. Thanks for, for joining us uh, with you for the next hour. I am Paul Callahan. Hello. Uh, I'm joined by Laura Summers. Hey, hey. <laughs> uh, and Joey in on the decks. Good um, evening. Uh, and as ever, with every week, uh, we'll be bringing you our usual mix of technology, interviews, and our inevitable opinions, both good and bad. <laughs> spicy hot takes is what this show should be called. <laughs> <laughs> very spicy, very hot, very takes. That almost worked, but we will move on. I um, liked it. It was good. Um, tonight, uh, we'll be joined by Professor Nicholas Davis, who's the co-director of the Human Technology Institute. Um, and Nicholas is going to talk to us about a recent report on the use of facial recognition technology and proposed model laws. Um, and we will also be talking to Brett Hagen and Nitran from Cortical Labs, who you may have recently seen in the news because they taught some brain cells in a dish to play Pong. Uh, we're very excited about having them in the studio with us. But first, uh, what else is going on uh, in the world of technology news? Um, opening with a little bit uh, of audience information, uh, a recent Woolworths and My Deal data breach um, happened uh, on the 14th of October. October, um, so just recently this week. So if you're not aware, um, my deal is a Woolworths Group subsidiary, uh, and they put out uh, a notification um, that identified that a compromised user credential was used to gain unauthorized access to its customer relationship management system that resulted in the exposure of some customer data. Um, they're in the process of contacting the approximately 2.2 million affected customers by email. Um, at the moment, uh, the data, according to their um, notification, includes customer names, email addresses, phone numbers, delivery addresses, and in some instances, date of birth. Um, but for 1.2 million of those customers, only their email addresses were exposed. Um, they very explicitly say that store payment, driver's license, or passport details, and no customer accounts or payment details were compromised in that breach. Um, but if you do have an account with them, it's worth keeping an eye on your own email. 
um, just to see if you're contacted or head across to willworthscript.com.eu um, to check out the, the media release if you want more information on that hot off the heels mm. of a recent another recent yeah and there's yet another another data breach turning into a ransomware attack so if you're a medibank um customer you've probably already got an email from them i know i did maybe a week ago sort of notifying that they'd had a notification that there had been some data stolen and they were working to verify the claims so they start they weren't even like totally convinced that it actually had been stolen um, but just to, I think this is like hot off the press maybe an hour ago, um, there's actually been a ransom um, demand. So hackers claiming to have stolen reams of data from Medi- Medibank Private have threatened to sell confidential custo- customer information, including sensitive health conditions and credit card details. So both of those very, very bad unless they pay a ransom. Um, and they are claiming to have stolen 200 gigabytes of sensitive information and threatening to contact 1,000 of its most prominent customers with their own personal information sort of as a shot off the bow. So that's um, that seems pretty serious. That seems like the kind of thing you wouldn't threaten someone to do unless you were prepared to follow through with it. Like, I'm not sure why you would say we have 20 gig of data specifically and we're going to contact 1,000 people with their own data to sort of let them know that we've got their information. Like... Um, that that can be sort of verified or not very very quickly. So I, I think this um seems like it's wrapping up to be a more serious um uh, like data breach than perhaps was initially thought. Yeah, for their part, Medipack have put out a statement that says they're working urgently to establish if the claim is true. Although based on our ongoing forensic investigation, we're treating the matter seriously at this time. Um, so again, worth checking your accounts, worth keeping an eye on the news um, for more up to date information on both of those views. I mean, it's it's really hard to tell. Are we more aware of these in the kind of the wake of the Optus breach or are they genuinely more happening? I don't know. I mean, we did actually, we do a lot of reporting of this particular kind of data breach on this show. So it sort of feels to me like it's been just like a steady trickle of these kinds of incidents um, for many years now. But I don't know, maybe the, the general public is a little bit more aware of them or sort of a bit more sensitive to them, especially with so many people having to reset their passports. That's a really expensive. Yeah. I was just chatting to a friend earlier who was saying they have flight plans and they don't know how long their passport is going to come. And for many people who um, have visas attached to their passports, you also have to get the visa reissued. So it's sort of the secondary tedious process you have to go through and however long that takes with a, an embassy could be you know a, a long a, a long, long process um, yeah and also like we we are putting i mean we all know this we are a technology show but like, the amount of information that we're sharing you know with these companies and i think it's yeah it's it's always a little bit frightening when you go oh that, that much data that much data is there and yeah. this, this can this can happen so. It's very easy. I mean, it's sort of increasingly impossible to imagine a world where your identity is going to be fully protected. Like there's just so many ways people can come in and, you know, try and fish you yeah. or try and um, otherwise like steal your identity or, you know, reset passwords as you. So, yeah, it's it's um it's not ideal. I've been doing a lot of sysadmining for <laughs> family members who are a bit freaked out by this stuff. And I kind of think, well, you know, so many people who are not tech savvy, like just need a lot of handholding and need a lot of support. And like for them, it's all, you know, like it's the whole service. Like they don't have a sense that like, oh, well, there's a database over here that has my customer login. And that's separate from like the data that I send on my text messages, for instance, with Optus. So like there's no sort of conceptual distinction. It's all the same service. And I mean, for brands, at least they should be very aware that once they've lost that trust, people will find it very hard 
takes a long time to like come back and feel like safe with a company again. Yeah, for sure. So sp- speaking of companies uh, and trust, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's happening Wonderful with Meta, Meta and Giphy? <laughs> yeah, so Facebook wanted to buy Giphy. In fact, I think they did buy Giphy some months ago now. Um, and th- this is like perhaps, you know, talking of shots off the bow, this is probably like arguably a low key like uh, fight as far as the overall question of monopolies in Meta, previously known as Facebook, now known as Meta. Like, you know, Giphy is a service that provides GIFs. It's or GIFs, depending on who you are and how you feel about the world. But GIFs forever. GIFs forever. There's really no other way. <laughs> my, my favorite meme about that is um. What if God came down and said, actually, it's pronounced Jod? Yeah, seriously. What if... What if <laughs> I don't know Jod, I follow that. No, that's really like... That's the mic drop moment. Um, anyway, back to the news. Meta is being forced to sell Giphy because they've been ordered by UK competition watchdog, um, essentially in, a, in an attempt to like um, improve comp- competition and like reduce the monopolistic power of Facebook. Um, one of the things I found very funny about this whole little saga, because of course, you know, with court cases, these things go for ages. Back in September, when Meta was arguing that they should be allowed to keep um, Giphy, they basically said, lols, we should be able to <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here, but like, you know, hey, man, only young people, like no young people even want gifts anyway. So it's not that anti-competitive for us to own it because it's only the boomers. And they said younger users were describing gifts as um, gifts in use and like, you know, messaging and like Slack chats and stuff as as only for boomers and cringe. I've seen a lot of uh, think pieces on that recently. Now I'm like <laughs> conspiracy theorizing that Facebook have been like planting those stories in the media so that they get to keep Giphy. Well, it doesn't... <laughs> We've it, all been psyoped. Yeah. Like that's what yeah, you're saying. Right, yeah. right. I mean, maybe we have, but I think it's it doesn't hold water as an argument anyway because at the end of the day, if you have a user base that's using GIFs and that's a significant aspect to their social media experience and then like the consolidation of, you know, services under a single brand is like essentially the definition of a monopoly, then, you know, it doesn't matter if it's boomers or millennials or, you know, elder millennials like myself (laughs) who are enjoying their use of gifts. And even if young folk are not getting on it and, you know, they're doing be real or whatever, whatever the cool new social media thing is, um, I think that it's, it's just such a weird, lazy argument anyway, and I'm kind of glad to see them taken to task here. Me too. I think that's, that's yeah. a good one. Um, yeah. Speaking of things that are for boomers and slightly cringe, um, <laughs> just like kicking a segue this evening, um, uh, FedEx, this isn't really Australian news, but I think it's kind of cute. Um, FedEx are shutting down their autonomous robot delivery project. So anyone who's been following any sort of parcel delivery um, research, I mean, who doesn't follow that news uh, on their on their feeds? Um, FedEx, along with a whole bunch of other kind of package companies, were developing like final mile ro- autonomous robot delivery things. Um, but FedEx just recently announced that they were going to basically wrap it up. Um, they they were saying they're immensely proud of the work that they've done um, to advance this cutting-edge technology that has put it on the path to future implementation. Um, and they remain committed to exploring last-mile innovations that align with their business strategy. But that's probably not going to be cute little robots rolling down the street. Um, and it comes just free, recently on the back of Amazon winding down a very, very similar um, program as well. So something in the water, maybe robots... Uh, 
are only coming to take some of our jobs, but those jobs will not be last mile deliveries. Yeah, the last like. the last mile delivery from the warehouse to your house, yeah. I guess. Yep. I mean, these are I, I what I'm reading. I'm reading between the lines here, and I I interpret this to mean it is too expensive for us to implement. Like that's basically my take. A is human is cheaper. A human yeah. is cheaper. Yep. It's easier to exploit humans. Um, that would be my take on this. I would, like arguably, I mean, you've seen probably these videos of like people kicking over cleaning robots, and you know, like there's just a lot of culture to be evolved around how we interact with you know like autonomous robots in our midst so like arguably like it's a culture issue as well like we need to see people like get comfortable with the idea um i mean i wouldn't be surprised if we see this get rolled out in south korea before we come here because you have some some places around the world are are a little bit more settled and just you know more embedded with tech whether good or bad up for grabs but I mean, my best robot experiences have absolutely been in Chinese restaurants recently, where I've just turned up and been led to my table. Yeah, I mean, there's the Japan robot. like robot robot yep. bar where yep. they actually just like have the robots like serving you, and yeah, it's very cute. Food, maybe food service. That's like that's the core the core <laughs> thing that all robots should be designed we've cracked, for. We've cracked we've, the business model. We've like... Figured it out. Like that'll be one million dollars, please. Um, that's a bit low. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> you gotta. I don't know where to go with that. Um, Laura, what's happening with Microsoft and GitHub? Um, yeah, so there's one last thing that's probably worth um, folks who are programmers or developers of any description being aware of. Um, this fellow, Matthew Butterick, which sounds so much like Broderick that I can't I can't like unnamespace clash that in my brain. Um, but Matthew Butterick is uh, suing along with a number of other people, Microsoft, um, on behalf of all of the open source repositories on GitHub. And He's suing them because there's this AI program that was trained across a whole bunch of code that is publicly accessible under open source licenses on GitHub. Um, but arguably the, the kind of commercial applications of this AI model, which was, you know, built by OpenAI and then sort of commercialized by GitHub, uh, sorry, by Microsoft, um, it's, it's a little bit unclear, like whether they even like followed the the spirit and the, um, you know, as well as the letter of the open source licenses. And I think it's, again, talking of like shots across the bow, like, I think you could argue that this GitHub co-pilot product, which, oh, sorry, I failed to explain what it is. It's a, it's a code sort of suggester. It's a little bit more than an autocomplete. So you might start typing a line and it will like give you a whole like function instead of just like completing the end of the word or, you know, like kind of knowing where you are. And, and based on a data set that's drawn from across GitHub. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I mean, I, I mean, you could even like argue if that's a good idea. Like, I think it would be a very interesting question to try and assess the quality of the data of all of the, all of the coding and all of the programming across like the open source libraries. Like you might even say, well, this isn't going to be a terrible idea because you're going to get this very average kind of code output. Um, but, you know, that to the side, I think the question of whether it was okay for them to train across all of these open source libraries and, um, you know, like more broadly, like these questions of um, intellectual property and ownership of code, like kind of are, are raised to the fore. And I think they're asking for people who have opinions about this or who think that, um, you know, they have a they have a like complaint or they feel like they want to support this um, class action suit to like basically contact them. So if you're interested in this, like I just go check out the website. It's GitHub Copilot Investigation.com. And um, yeah. That's what it says on the 10. That's exa- exactly, <laughs> literally does what it says on the Tim. You're listening to Bite Into It on 3RRR with me, Paul Callahan, Joe, and Laura. Um, we are now joined by Professor 
Nicholas Davis, Industry Professor, Emerging Technology and Co-Director of the Human Technology Institute, which is UTS's new initiative on building Australia's capability on ethical and responsible artificial intelligence. Um, along with Professor Ed Rosanto and Lauren Penny, he's the author of a brand new report, Facial Recognition Technology Towards a Model Law. Professor, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so just as an opener, um, tell us about this new report. Look, uh, it's a really interesting fact that nine times or even 99 times out of the, all the moments that we get uh, recognised and scanned by facial recognition in Australia today, we, we don't know about it at all. It happens when we walk into clubs, clubs and pubs. It happens as we're driving, as it happens when we're in retail context. And so this model law was really designed to propose uh, a proper... Um, rigorous legal framework to protect the rights of Australians and ensure that commercial businesses or the government don't use that, that facial recognition technology to restrict our rights. That is an intense statistic. Um, that's fascinating. Um, is that what was kind of uncovering that? Um, what prompted the development of the, this research or did it come from, from somewhere else? So it's very hard to get exact statistics uh, on the amount of use of facial recognition in, in any country around the world. Uh, we know, for instance, that you know, if you're uh, a Londoner, you live in the most surveilled city uh, in the world with um, uh, approximately a million CCTV cameras, both private and public, um, and many of them, um, you know, most recently for the Queen's funeral, were, were hooked up to facial recognition systems. But it's hard to get the data from private enterprise and, and government users of this. Uh, this year, Choice, the consumer rights group, uh, wrote to a whole range of Australian businesses asking about their use of facial recognition uh, and uncovered three that were willing to admit to it. Uh, Bunnings, The Good Guys, um, uh, and Kmart. Uh, and really, we were already working on this report, uh, but it goes to show how, when Australians do realise the extent to which they're being surveilled and face data is being captured, um, people suddenly think of this as something that, you know, there need to be use limitations and much better notice on when and where and how it's being used. I'm curious. Um, I know that for many folks, sort of the distinction between CCTV footage and facial recognition is not sort of a clear line. And I think that facial recognition being sort of this um, underpinning modeling, this underpinning technology that's kind of invisible to anyone except the users of it and the person seeing the sort of outputs of that model. Um, so like for, for, for folks who like maybe are like less familiar with the space, can you describe a little bit of like the, the new risks and challenges that are, um, introduced when we have this mix of all of the CCTV footage, plus these models that can do this, you know, facial recognition, identify, uh, sorry, identification, making like, you know, scanning, scanning me and Woolies as I scan my food, that kind of thing. Exactly. Look, so we talk about three different types of facial recognition in the report, and it's important to note that each of them come with quite different risks and implications for our privacy. Um, the first is what um, most listeners will be um, actually probably quite aware of, which is the, the facial verification that you might use to unlock your smartphone. Um, that's one-to-one -one matching, so there's essentially 
an image of your face in your phone. It, the camera scans your face when you, you look at the, the camera to open your phone, and, and it just says, this person is who this person is. That's Vanessa. We'll let her into her phone. Um, that's not super risky, and most Australians are pretty okay with this. Um, and in fact, you know, the government and other groups are looking to use that as a strong form of biometric checking to, to, to you know, make sure that uh, hackers can't get access to our data. We already use that at, um, at borders in Australia to come in and out of the country. Um, the more it's insidious and slightly, um, well, I'd say very, um, quite more risky uh, version of facial recognition is facial identification which can be run on um, still images or indeed CCTV footage or any video. And that's one-to-many matching. It's where it takes an, um, an image that perhaps of my face and it, and it looks to find who I am from a reference database. Um, this is kind of what the police use to find suspects uh, using facial recognition. But it's also what uh, a company can use to, say, identify who you are, where you've been elsewhere in their stores, and, and market you with certain products. The third and riskiest type of facial recognition technology is called facial analysis. And that's really less about telling you or telling anyone who you are and more um, about what you're like. Uh, and these systems try and tell you your health characteristics, um, where uh, your, your race, your gender, your ethnicity, national origin, uh, your, even your emotional state and your intention. Um, and as you go through those three types of facial recognition, the accuracy goes down and the potential for misuse goes up. Uh, and co correspondingly, Australians get more concerned about the liberal use of these technologies without any kind of clear regulation currently in states and territories. Mm. That would be the sort of what we what we often describe on this show is sort of digital phrenology topic where you're sort of reading the tea leaves of someone's frown and eyebrows and assuming some kind of, uh, you know, sentiment from that, from the appearance of their face. And as someone who has a very proper resting bitch face, like I would be very worried about this because I don't want people to think I'm unhappy all the time just because I look serious. Exactly. And it is that type of technology is being used, for example, um, at stadiums uh, and public places around the world to judge aggressiveness, despite the fact that it is really, really bad at doing that well. Yeah. And you can imagine that for folks who are already marginalized or, you know, having a bad experience with police, it would be wildly problematic to then, you know, send security or other kinds of like policing forces to intervene on a specific individual before they've done something um, based on the look on their face. Like that's, that feels like a, a very minority report sort of world to wander down into. So, pick, so picking up on those, those kind of areas, what are the, what does your report suggest that, that we do, that we adopt, that we kind of, what steps do we take to reduce these risks? Yeah, so around the world, uh, when you look at different um, jurisdictions that have tried to tackle this problem, there tend to really be only kind of, um, well, three major strategies that, that countries and states try and approach. The first one is um, let's just wait and see and rely on existing law, which is the case of Australia right now. Um, the second is um, let's just ban it altogether. 
Um, and sometimes that gets translated into, well, hold on a second, let's just ban it in certain use cases, what, what are called limited moratoria. And this is the case of, say, San Francisco um, or, um, or some parts of Washington State that have restricted the use of facial recognition uh, for short periods of time by law enforcement. Uh, and the third is to um, place very strong limits around who can consent and at what points you can consent to facial recognition technology, which is the case in Illinois in the, um, in the US. Um, but we believe that none of those three options are ideal because there are fantastic use cases for facial recognition. Um, and there are many times when, um, you know, the general public and, you know, me even as a very human rights focused and privacy conscious researcher would say, no, that, that is appropriate, you know, in a terrorism incident or in a, a, a case of victim identification, et cetera. Um, so our approach is to bring what's called a, a risk-based approach to creating regulation here and legislation, whereby essentially every user, so every you know, coffee shop or large retailer or government agency that wants to use facial recognition would first use our model um, law to essentially assess its risk and do what we call a facial recognition impact assessment. Uh, depending on the risk level that came out of that assessment process, you would either say that's totally okay, you have to abide by technical standards and you know register your use, et cetera, all the way up to, no, this is very high risk. Um, we know this is likely going to be misused or used recklessly or, or fail in ways that, that affect vulnerable people, and therefore you, you should not do this, it should be uh, banned. And that's what we lay out in the model law, those, the way of assessing those levels, the different levels, and the legal requirements that would keep us safe. On that, on that extreme end of that, can you give us some examples of what those, those high-level risks would, would be? Yes, um, I think um, Vanessa mentioned CCTV earlier. A really high-risk use case would be if um, an enforcement agency, law enforcement, set up a camera on the street that just captured everyone's faces as they were walking down the street and live did facial recognition to um, uh, look for suspects out in with very kind of minor crime cases like noise disturbances or, you know, non-violent offences. Um, essentially, what you're doing is you are subjecting all people in a public space to um, a, a system that, even if it works really well, will still have um, a big negative influence on our rights, our right to, to privacy, to association, to freedom from interference. Uh, and it's not something that really any Australians say they want to, uh, to consent to. Um, a, a short step away from that is the use case in retail shops, like in, um, in a hardware store. Um, most Australians really feel, and I agree, that that's a space you should be able to walk in and not have a fear of being tracked and, um, and identified. So both those cases would, in our, um, in our model, be viewed as um, high risk. And the only way that you would be able to get an exception would be on application to the regulator or if you had a strong argument as, um, in law enforcement or in, um, uh, in research. Um, so I'm, I'm really curious about the sort of concept of the model law that, that this piece of work um, lays out. And I've, I'm sort of skimming it through to understand um, how it is that you imagine it being implemented. And like, particularly, I'm curious to know, do you do you sort of see it as setting the, the um, grounds for 
actual like law cases or class action suits going forwards based on contraventions of the the principles laid out, or is it more um, a model for people to sort of use as a thought experiment? No, we are very um, uh, deliberate and targeted in calling on the federal attorney general to make a commitment to introducing something of this sort um, into legislation at the federal level, first and foremost, and secondly, to then align with states and regulators through the, uh, the attorneys general, because um, constitutionally you, you can't bind in Australia uh, the states and territories and their government's um, use of facial recognition um, through a federal law. So you have to have alignment and, and, and kind of cooperation amongst the states and territories to make it really... Um, harmonised. Um, and third, we are really keen that there be um, a well-resourced regulator, such as the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, that would be able to handle uh, this process of supporting uh, government agencies, businesses, law enforcement and, and other users of facial recognition to be able to do so safely. Uh, essentially introducing what we think of as useful friction into the system that nevertheless won't prevent innovation. It will just make sure that those use cases are um, wisely implemented. And this is a question we often ask when we get into these realms of, of sort of advocacy and, and law, but what, what can our listeners do? How can they support... Um, you know, the implementation of this law or maybe like amplify some questions around digital literacy, literacy or facial recognition literacy. Um, what can what can people listening to us right now do today or tomorrow? Yeah, so your listeners could, um, there's a petition by the Consumer Rights Group Choice, which is at choice.com.au and sign a petition, which um, we're working with uh, them and many others, such as the Tech Council of Australia and the Human Rights Law Centre, to essentially create that um, mutual understanding and groundswell of movement uh, to make sure that we do protect and uphold uphold our, our rights in this in this realm. So that's one thing. Uh, and the second thing uh, is really just uh, starting to question and understand and notice where facial recognition is being used. Because a few years ago in Victoria, it was trialled in a number of independent schools. Mm. There was a bit of an outcry. And I'm hearing stories now from listeners around Australia that, oh, this is being, this is being used in my workplace. This is being used in my school still, for the, in the cafeteria um, or for role. And, and those, because we're not talking about it, it's not very visible. You can do this without telling anyone because it's just running behind a CCTV camera. Um, we really need that kind of those stories and that focus to come out to make sure that we don't end up in a, a bit of a, a very much a surveillance state uh, without noticing but that is that is um similar to your statistic up front that is also um slightly slightly frightening um and if people want to hear more or read more about your report and the surrounding research where can they where can they find that if you go to uts.edu.au uh, forward slash hti that's where uh, human technology institute at uts has um a pdf of our report uh, and also, um, look, if you just Google the topic of facial recognition or choice as a consumer advocate, you'll come across a lot of really interesting work and commentary around this. Uh, and we think even though putting technology-specific legislation as a proposal is, is not generally a good idea, 
in the case of facial recognition, it's moving so quickly and being implemented at such wide scales, we kind of really deserve it as a, to each other as Australians to make sure we are protected. Yeah, we we can we we're a technology yeah, so we hundred percent agree. We're like fist pumping you in the background here. We totally agree. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. So next up, we are going to have a chat to two very cool biologists who have um, like actually come and joined us in the studio from their work at Cortical Labs, um, who recently published a paper which describes an experimental setup where they grew some neurons in a environment they've called dish brain and taught those neurons to play Pong. So welcome, Brett Kagan and Ni Tran. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on the show. So exciting to talk about this. So maybe tell us a little bit about this experimental setup, like what motivated it and like what were you trying to learn? So the, the core of the work really was asking the, this really big question of what allows cells neurons, in this case brain cells, to actually learn and engage in intelligent behavior in the real world. And so we figured there's so much, so many ways to investigate this, but if you're not doing it at the most fundamental level, there's always going to be compensatory things that are coming in. It's going to be very tough. So we wanted to start out with that question, and we built up from there. So unlike these sorts of other approaches where you're simulating a neural environment, you're simulating everything in a digital, you know, in a computing environment, you actually wanted to observe what it is about physical, biological neurons in the world that make them learn and make them efficient at that learning. Absolutely. There's some really amazing things that come out of biological neurons. They're able to learn quickly, very low power consumption they're able to um, adapt to multiple changing environments. And these are all challenges that machine learning is yet to solve. And so, you know, the, the classic phrase that I, I like to say to you know, a lot of people about this is, why would we try to mimic what we could harness? Mm. And certainly the energy cost of machine learning models is something that's come up in the news like more and more recently when people are building these enormous transformers and using enormous amounts of data to train them. Um, so uh, can you give us like a rough ratio of like how much electrical impulse um, the brain uses compared to, say, like a silicon chip? So the, the average human brain uses, and there's some different sources around this, but approximately 20 watts. It's so low as to not be... Uh, a feature to really even worry about in this case. Well, obviously, for machine learning efforts, uh, it ranges uh, to, to in the gigawatts, depending on what the training goes on. So, it's chalk and cheese here, and, and mm -hmm. that's not you know that's not to say that there's no role for machine learning. Of course, there is, but it's the right tool for the right job. And when you're engaging in a real dynamic world, the only substrate we know that can do this with generalized intelligence are biological neurons. Mm -hmm. So perhaps one of you could explain, like, the experiment set up in more detail. Like, I sort of understand roughly we have neurons and you want them to learn Pong, but, like, how, how does that work? Like, can you, can you tell us exactly how you set it up? Yeah, so we essentially isolated from two different types. So we took some cortical neurons from embryonic mice, and the other source of cells or neurons was from an uh, stem cell source. And so we sort of cultured these, give, gave them the right type of instructions, and they sort of develop uh, this neural network we call. So it's all these different brain cells connecting to each other, and that's what we call a, a neural network. 
essentially this goes on for about 90 days. You know, they start having these firing actions. They're all talking to each other. Then we put them onto a little chip um, and that's when we start giving the information to these neural networks. And that's, that information is through these electrical stimulations. And so these electrical stimulations are sort of saying, here's, so we're using the Pong game um, as the interface. And so this information was saying, here's your paddle, here's the ball, go at it. And so what we did was we would sort of read that information that they were sending each other and also um, uh, sort of in the uh, dish brain and Pong environment. And we read that information and that's our output. So we were measuring how many times they hit the ball, how many times they missed, was it random, was it sort of with intent? Um, and that's sort of the learning uh, progression that we saw and assessed. So were you attempting to correlate like firing of neurons with like moving the paddle, for instance? Like were you trying to sort of see some kind of direct line to intent there? Yeah, so Brett can speak more about this nuanced stuff because I'm more of a biological... <laughs> yeah, I, own, I know the biology more, but essentially neurons are constantly firing. They have so, sub-level of electrical activity, but when it's... Got, yeah, like we say with intent, then you get a shot of action potential that we say. And so we were measuring that. Wow, so cool. Um, I'm I'm really curious to know like how you how you kind of built the confidence that, you know, this was actually learning and getting better over time and that it wasn't like just, you know, wishful thinking that, oh, we really want to, we really want to assume that these little like, you know, mini brains are going to learn. So uh, yeah, that's an excellent question. And it comes down to a lot of work, basically, is the, is the answer. So when we look, we, we obviously set out with the intent to try and show that these things, these little cells in a dish could have some sort of learning. We, we expected they could because, again, biological neurons, basis for all learning. It shows learning in a worm, it shows learning in a fly, everything. But we saw it actually much earlier on in our testing than what we expected. And so we, we were surprised because for context, and I think that's really important, especially when you look at a performance, people expect sort of machine learning level, superhuman performance. This has got less neurons in a bumblebee. It's got super sparse information. Uh, even those neurons are not structured in the same complex way that a bee has. So they're a flat bumblebee with blindfolded, you could think of it. <laughs> uh, and, and yet we saw that they were able to really quickly reorganize their electrical activity. So one of the things, of course, we did were many, many control groups. So we controlled for uh, could it just be the program showing some sort of learning? Could it be just stimulating a dish can make it look like it's learning? We control to see if we change the way that we represent the feedback that we give them for their learning. Will they stop learning or start learning more or, or whatever the case was? And surprisingly, this is, I think, the first study I've ever done in my life. Everything just pointed to the same answer. These were able to reorganize their electrical activity in fairly complex and dynamic ways to play this game in a relatively quick time, uh, you know, again, not to human level performance, but much better than chance. That's incredible. And I think perhaps what's interesting here is, as, as you say, you know, so much of machine learning research and um, assessment and sort of, you know, like horse racing is focused on like getting to these superhuman levels, but perhaps like it's leaving a bunch of opportunities for, um, you know, improvements, efficiencies in our existing tech systems 
when we look at these subhuman levels where you can just do the same thing but at a very low level, at very low power, with very small amounts of um, you know, processing capabilities. So perhaps perhaps people focusing on these like extreme ends of the scale are are missing out sort of the forest for the trees. Well, it's, again, it's a right tool for the right job. Mm-hmm. So if you want a something that can go and navigate a complex environment, say seek out something, let's say in this case food, look at a fly. Fly does this amazingly. They're pretty hard to kill. They, they navigate. They deal with their environment. Brilliant. They don't need 5,000, 10,000 samples of data to be training over and over again to make the decision something's trying to hit me, I should move. It's all programmed in. So if you can leverage that, let's say... You know, I think I heard something before on the show about uh, you know robot delivery. Mm. Maybe this is saying that could make it cheaper and more accessible. And you know, I also heard the comment about you know people being worried about the jobs, which is fair enough. But you know, imagine if we could have a technology that really gave people this capability, and we could actually use it in a way to help society relieve people of dangerous or or um, you know demeaning or difficult jobs, and actually mm. allow them just to be people. Uh, you know, yes, this does require a society change, but if this sort of technology comes about, it could be very positive. You're getting a real like heart bump from Jill right now. <laughs> she was enjoying that. Um, and uh, like you know, since we're talking about improving the quality of life, like I think perhaps the the sort of flip of this question is like, what is the quality of experience for these little neural bundles? And and do we maybe want to investigate this question of like the ethics of doing this, like asking neural cells to do essentially. Compute? Is that a good metaphor? Like, do computing tasks for us? Yeah, that's always a dangerous word to use, compute, with with neurons. But uh, (laughs) look, you you really, when people think about neurons, they always think about it, oh, biology, medicine, physiology. But what they also are is this amazing biomaterial that's able to take information, process it, and do something with that. Now, that doesn't mean that they have any conscious experience. And we use the word sentience in our uh, article, but we're very clear that we didn't mean they had any feeling or, or conscious phenomenological experience. It simply meant that they were able to be sensing their environment, processing it, and responding in a dynamic way, which is what many things you could argue do. Uh, but that doesn't say well, we're. You could under- argue the same of wheat. You know, wheat senses its <laughs> environment and responds to where the sun is and grows towards it, but we don't have any sort of moral qualms about like harvesting the wheat and turning it into bread. Exactly. And I, look, of course, we can go down deeper into the nuances of that, but there's nothing to say that uh, inherently the, that using a neuron is r- related to consciousness. In fact, we have evidence for the opposite. There are things that happen with humans when they can be injured where they can lose all conscious experience, still display intelligence. So we can head towards that that goal. But, you know, people worried about cells in a dish. But there's also at the moment huge amounts of animal testing, which is very necessary at the moment. But what if we could use this technology as a replacement and test drugs to see how it affects the cognition or information processing in the dish so we could relieve animals? And, and Nee can probably talk a bit more about that because she does a lot of animal testing now. Yeah, so uh, I'm a postdoc at the Hudson Institute of Medical Research uh, under the Ritchie Center. And so I'm interested in sort of neurodevelopment and neurological uh, disorders that happen during pregnancy and um, post-birth. And, you know, one of the things that I, I do is animal research. And it's, you know, this very important aspect of the scientific uh investigations and you know we conduct this you know under ethical guidelines and things like that but you know one of the things that I was super interested in with the work that Cortical Labs was doing was 
whether we could either replace, reduce the amount of animal research that we're doing. So with this work in particular, this whole learning effect and using, uh, I guess, computational um, capacities is assessing whether we could use that as sort of a drug discovery um, interface, uh, platform, or even just trying to understand how intelligence occurs and when when it goes wrong. So how does, you know... Um, diseases like autism and ADHD, you know, these are neurological cognition uh, disorders. And you know, how do they come about and what, what can we treat um, mm. these things? So, so I'm imagining like you would form some kind of hypothesis like, um, I don't know, excess stimulation might lead to some kind of problem and then you could sort of play that out in the dish brain experiment setup. Yeah. Is that kind of a reasonable summary? Yeah, yeah. So a good example is epilepsy. Okay. So, for example, my little brother has epilepsy. And we're still trying to figure out the best course of medication for him. It's been three years. He still has ongoing seizures. And it's just each appointment, it's like, this is not the right medication dose. We're going to need to keep trying again next year, next year. And if this, we could use this dish brain, sort of perhaps even culture his cells. And so they have that personality, that identity, his, uh, his um, uh, DNA and all, all the things that make up him. And then we could test different drugs, and that could take, what, a month? And that could give us an indication of what type of treatment, what dosage that we should be looking for and targeting. And so instead of, you know, people like my little brother who's having this three-year, four-year course of intervention, that could be, you know, significantly reduced. And I Mm. think there's really big applications for this in the future. That's fascinating. Um, And knowing that you can culture these cells from, like, not you know, scraping someone's brain, but from, from, um, from skin cells, right? Like you can sort of repurpose skin cells to make them like neurons and then use them. That, that means that it could be even like, you know, this is like the kind of glorified word, but individualized medicine, like Mm -mm. you could imagine it being like actually medicine. That's, that's it. Yeah. Um, which I, you know, I'm very attracted to that concept because it seems so much more practical than any kind of statistic. Cause I don't care about how this drug impacts people on average. I care about how it will impact me. Mm -mm. Um, um, so I'm I'm really curious to know what's next. Do you have like you know we've we've learned to play pong? Are we going to learn to play chess next, or is there an intermediary step? Like, do you have a a, a next experiment set up in mind, Brett? Yeah, P- pong was great because it's a continuous game. Chess would be very tough because it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but look, the next steps are, are very much we're going to be focusing on building out sort of three key arms, and they're really the parts that came together to make this work, which is the hardware, the software, and what we call the wetware or the biology side of it and so we basically want to improve across all of these and we can do things like the aforementioned drug drug testing disease modeling we can build better better ways to interact with these cells better algorithms better hardware and we really just want to see what goes next and you know the other thing that of course we're also pursuing you brought up before is is making sure that this can go forward in an ethical and responsible manner so we're also making sure that we're engaging now and beforehand actually as well with a number of independent bioethicists across the world and so we're hoping with, like, these good collaborations and sort of hopefully, we hope, uh, you know, responsible approach, you can have some really nice outcomes over the next few years and some really exciting applications. That sounds so cool. And if folks are interested to read the article or read a bit more about Cortical Labs, where would they go? So there's an article published in the journal Neuron. It's all open access, so everybody can read it. And you can also check out some of our work at Cortical Labs. And, of course, we're also on all the socials if you want to search that up. Thank you so much, Brett and me, for coming in. That was such a fascinating discussion.
是否啦？ Just as we come towards the end of the the end of our show, just some some little weird news pieces of the week.、Um, somebody just paid fifty thousand、uh, dollars Australian, just over fifty thousand dollars Australian for an unopened iPhone from two thousand and seven. What a dream purchase that that must have been.、Um, It's a very classic model. I think it is the original, the OG original phone. iPhone.、Um, yeah, so way from way back in two thousand seven. So if you've got that sort of money and you want, I don't know, is that a collector's item? I guess, I guess it must be. One, one assumes that the fifty k price tag makes it a collector's <laughs> item. <laughs> Um, some other some other weird news. I mean, probably most people have seen this, but Elon Musk、uh, asked the U.S. government to fund Starlink for U- Ukraine,、uh, and then immediately changed his mind five minutes later. Another lulls moment for the internet.、Um, certainly,、uh, I think this is a very interesting and complex topic. Like, should the internet just be a service that you know a company or sorry a country pays for? Like, you know, obviously when people are under attack and fearing for their lives, the last thing they want to worry about is getting losing access. To the internet, especially if that's a thing that can tell them where to go to be safe,、um, I'm sure you all have seen this footage of the live drones that have been screaming around、um, Kiev, the capital, and they've been upping the ante on that. So I imagine having internet access is very important for the safety of people living in the country at the moment, and probably too important to trust to to one one man. Especially、uh, rather changeable. <laughs> yes, yes.、Um, and sticking、uh, with the Elon Musk adjacent train,、uh, Kanye West is thinking about buying Parler, the right-wing free speech social media platform.、Uh, I think I did also see that Elon Musk had posted some sort of some sort of meme about、um, collaborating with Kanye or them doing some sort of conjoining. Activity. Is it like、oh, no. Dragon Energy Squared or something? Yeah, I don't something. Know. I'm so, terrified. So anyone, anyone who's slightly worried about you know social networks becoming the purview of of these the Kanye West and Elon Musk,、um, keep on top of that news.、Um, some super quick、uh, events and opportunities.、Um, A new legal thinking for emerging technologies event by the Mendes Foundation and Centre for AI and Digital Ethics.、Um, there's a lecture by Dr. Ramona Vajirasa,、um, UTS winner of the Women in Artificial Intelligence and Law Award 2022,、um, titled "Harnessing Technology to Advance Gender Equality,"、um, and that will be chaired by Professor Cheryl Saunders. And it's happening on the 15th of November from 5:30 to 7:30. Laura, it's also Get Online Week. Yes, that's right. It's a Australia Wild Digital Inclusion Campaign supporting thousands of people to get online safely and confidently. I think this is focusing on the digital divide, so we think of people in remote areas and often older folks who are less digitally confident.、Um, It is a try one theme. Sorry, the theme for the week is try one thing, encouraging people to explore the possibilities of getting online.、Um, so, if you're interested, you can just literally Google、um, "get online week." It is up online on、uh, inclusi.org.au, but you might find it easier just to Google for "get online week."、Um, and there's also an event coming up、um, by friends of the show,、um, the Web Directions folks, that is going to be happening, I think, early November. Um, if you happen to want to get onto the digital program, or even if you are in Sydney and you want to go and check it out,、um, we actually have a code for folks who want to go. It's Summit Friend.、Um, so, friend of us is a friend of you now. <laughs>、um, but it's it's a huge program. It's I used to go to these all the time. I mean, it's been it's been missing in the ecosystem having these live events, and、um, I 
think if everyone else is craving a bit of face-to-face interaction, um, this this uh, event usually delivers the goods. So I would recommend going and checking it out. Cool. Uh, thank you to our guests, Professor Nicholas Davis and Brett Hagen and Nitran. Um, thank you to our hosts. I'm Paul Callahan. We've been joined by Laura Summers and Joe Eaton. Um, thanks also to talk to producer Elizabeth McCarthy and podcaster Carrie Smith. We've been by into it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening and stay tuned for the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.